Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Alice Fisher. Alice joined the Department of Justice in July of 2001 as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. She had been working there for only six weeks when the tragedies of September 11th occurred. Over the next two years, she worked on counterterrorism issues before returning to the private sector at Latham and Watkins. She returned to the Department of Justice from 2005 to 2008 when she served as the Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division and helped stand up the National Security Division. She has also held other positions in government, including Deputy Special Counsel to a U.S. Senate Special Committee. Alice currently is a partner at Latham & Watkins, where she continues her work on a range of criminal matters and is an advisory board member at NSI. Alice, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Megan. It's a delight to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm excited. So, Could you share with us a little bit about how you found yourself working as an attorney in national security? Was it something you had always wanted to do? Let me just say working in national security was certainly one of the most challenging and at the same time most rewarding jobs that that I certainly was blessed to ever have. And I'm so thankful every day to the people across the country in so many different federal and local agencies that are protecting us as well as those who are serving our country abroad. Looking back, I can say it was an absolute honor to have that mission driving you every day after 9-11 in particular. I've just been so amazed, but that ever since that time, all the work that continues to be so relevant and important to our country and national security and all the committed individuals that still are sacrificing every day for us. I can't actually say, Megan, that (laughs) working on national security was part of what I expected to spend my time on as a lawyer, you know, and I certainly not even knowing that when I joined the Department of Justice just about six weeks before 9-11. I had been interested in law enforcement. I thought about joining the FBI. I had even applied to be a a counterterrorism prosecutor early on in my legal career. But, um, you know, none of that was really expected to the extent that I had the opportunity to work in that after 9-11. It wasn't even coming at an opportune time. I had a baby that was six weeks old. I had just made partner at my law firm. But, you know, luckily I had one of my great mentors, Michael Chertoff, who was um, the head of the criminal division at the time and later became secretary of Homeland Security, who really encouraged me to come over and step up to that challenge, even though it wasn't the best time. And I am so thankful to him and all the mentors that have been so happy and, and, and nice to me through the years to to have me take those opportunities. You had only been working in government for several weeks on September 11th, 2001. Can you describe for us what you remember from that day? Yeah, it's interesting because I can remember so many of the details from that day, so many of the motions from that day. I, I have goosebumps just 
beginning to talk about it again right now because it just seems so real. But then every day after that, for the next two years, working on national security issues and, and the terrorism issues, it seems like just one long day. And so what I can tell you about that day is I was, you know, getting into the details. I was driving my car into D.C. from Alexandria. And I as I got closer to the Department of Justice, Main Justice building downtown, I heard on the radio some talk show host saying a plane just hit one of the towers. And my husband was in the air flying to New Jersey or New York. I couldn't remember at the time. I thought that the radio show host may have been doing a prank. It wasn't real to me yet. I picked up the phone, you know, called my husband and said, look, Clint, I just heard this really weird thing on the radio. And can you just call me as soon as you land? And I parked my car and I hightailed it over to, to Maine Justice and ran up to my office. And having had the role and responsibility of overseeing the counterterrorism section, at the criminal division, there were already people in my office. The phone was ringing off the hook. The pagers were going on. The TV in my office was on. And as we were calibrating and answering the calls, we saw the second plane hit. And at that point, it just really sunk in what we were dealing with. And so I and others, like my boss, Mike Chertoff at the time, and others from the criminal division front office, went directly over to the FBI to find out what it was that we could do to help and mm -hmm. uh, what our role was going to be. And it was surprising because even in that just early, early time period, there were already people at the FBI moving about getting things done, getting the plane manifests from the airlines, you know, collecting the files, looking at intelligence, talking to the New York field office. So there was already a ton of activity going on that morning. I was then asked to join a room that was a room full of video links to other agencies and departments in the government. So the White House, the Department of Transportation, the agency, the Pentagon, et cetera. And there were people from each of the branches sharing information about what they were saying from their, from their different perspective. And I was young uh, on the back bench. You know, I didn't know a soul in the room. It was a small room. I was looking at these videos and they were literally tracking the other planes that were still in the air at that time. And so that was going on. And, and then at some point, I remember the person from the White House saying, OK, you know, you're we're going to another location. And I walked out, uh, talked to my boss, Mike Chertoff at the time, and he said, you're going. I'm staying. So I, wow. I went over to the Department of Justice, got into an SUV with the deputy attorney general and some other members from his staff and from the, the department. We got in the car to go to this other lo other location. And I didn't know the deputy attorney general. I had only been on the job for six weeks. I didn't know <laughs> oh anybody goodness. in the car. Meanwhile, my phone is ringing. You know, I'm just sitting there with my notebook, you know, putting down the flight names, the numbers that were coming in, the number of victims, like all of the information that I could get in that was being funneled to me from the criminal division so I could repeat it to the deputy or the others in the car. And then we, we passed the Pentagon. And at that point, the guy next to me, Adam Chingoli, like put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, Barbara, Barbara Olson, who was a friend of mine, was on that flight that hit the Pentagon and smoke oh of course, was coming up. And so at that point it was, okay, hold it together. 
pulled it together. And so I just kept, you know, doing my job. We went to the other location. We were there for a while. And eventually, you know, we made our way back to uh, the FBI and, you know, continued to work. And there were phone calls with all the different field offices across the country. And, and just from then on, it was working on counterterrorism. Wow. I can't even imagine what that day must have been like for you. You know, I'm I'm also kind of amazed that you were able to keep it together under that extreme stress. I mean, you had a 12-week-old son at home. Your husband was on an airplane in the air um, while our country continued to what we thought be under attack. How did you manage the day given all that was going on? So that's a great question. And the real answer is, looking back, I have no idea. I I just went into extreme focus mode. And there was so much to do. There was so much information and coordination and so much coming at at me all at once and, and at everyone, frankly, all at once. And I just knew I had to hold it together. I don't know where it came from, but I was just all about focusing and getting the work done. Um, you know, it was part of what was very clear to me on that day. This was going to be our mission at the Department of Justice going forward to protect the country and what Al-Qaeda had done to our country and the tragedy and the victims and the grief that changed our lives, so many lives. It was just, I think, a powerful driver, Megan. Wow. So, what was your role with the Justice Department after 9-11? And what were some of the most notable cases that you worked on during your time there? So I would say for the next two years, my job was about 75% national security. Every morning we had a briefing, the criminal division, uh, either my, my boss or myself or, or one other person from the front office, Dave Namius, would go over and brief the attorney general or the FBI director on everything that was happening on the criminal side. So subpoenas, arrests, uh, prosecutions, information coming in from, from cooperating witnesses, whatever. We would brief in the morning to get the attorney general and the director ready to brief the president. Okay. And the FBI would be there to brief and other intelligence information would come in and it would be about, that was our piece, but it was also about what was the intelligence, what was the next threat. I mean, the first order of business was always, what is the next attack? What is the threat information coming in and what are we going to do about it? So that was, that was certainly part of my job, but then the day would, so the day would start early and it would go from there and it would often be coordinating with the intelligence community. That was a large part of my job, which was um, something that I feel I was privileged to do, but, you know, work with so many people that were so dedicated and committed to protecting the country and making sure that they were getting the information that they needed from what we were gathering um, out from the 93 U.S. Attorney's offices. But frankly, you know, it was a two-way street to make sure that people were it seems so obvious now to share that information, but at the mm -hmm. time, there were no channels between the criminal division and the intelligence community to share information about prosecutions. There were no channels. There were obstacles, in fact, to sharing some of the information. So thank God we're not there anymore in dealing with current crises and things like that. But that was a big part of it as well back in the day that was just sounds easy now. It was hard. 
You ask about the notable cases, I would say, you know, the 9-11 investigation was so global, you know, because these hijackers had been all over the world and there were right. subpoenas all over the place trying to figure out where they were, where they get their money, what their links were, you know, to, to get that. And that, you know, resulted in many prosecutions. The the Zacharias Massawi prosecution was probably the most notable. He was known as the 20th hijacker at the time, and he was prosecuted in Virginia. But there were others. There was um, Richard Reed, who was somebody who was an Al-Qaeda operative that tried to take a plane down by putting a bomb in his shoe and lighting that bomb off over, over the, in the sky. There were a group of uh, U.S. citizens that went over and trained with Al-Qaeda and then came back to the U.S. They were prosecuted. There were, you know, just many, many cases like that of people that were going to do harm to our country. And, you know, the criminal court system wasn't the only um, tool to gather intelligence and to, to hold people accountable, but it was certainly one of them and um, certainly one that was important in the overall war on terrorism. So I think our, our listeners will be really interested to learn how you use intelligence or work together with the intelligence community when you are litigating these cases. Um, were there times you experienced a tension working with the agencies, you know, to protect sources and methods? Well, I was, I was constantly amazed by the incredible work done by the intelligence agencies and the commitment and the, you know, seemingly 24 hours a day, seven days a week with what they were carrying, what the men and women in the intelligence community were carrying on their shoulders you know, to get that information and to get it right. Because again, that the feeling of a second wave or the next attack was so real every day. And so I was really amazed by the work that they did. The, the tension on the sources and methods versus criminal prosecution and intelligence, that is real. It wasn't real with the people. You know, mm -hmm. there was no tension with the people because everybody had the same mission, but the tension clearly was there and, and trying to navigate it was difficult. It was a challenge. So on the one hand, you had the, the, the terrorists who we could prosecute in the criminal courts. We had evidence that we could bring in front of a jury and in front of a judge to prosecute them and put them away. And that was important to show you know, America and the world, frankly, that we had a system of justice that could prosecute terrorists and put mm -hmm. them in jail. At the same time, there are discovery obligations in a criminal court system where prosecutors have to turn over certain information to a defense. And so the thought of turning over our intelligence information about Al-Qaeda to a defendant who is a member of Al-Qaeda, you right. can understand how that's that's something that's really important to protect. And certainly, again, when there's others, we're, we're in the middle of a war, right, right. against Al-Qaeda and Af we have troops abroad and all of that. So those, those equities on what information could be disclosed, how it could be disclosed, and what would actually harm our sources and methods and how do we navigate that with the court and the judges who would would require prosecutors to do that was an ongoing thing. I spent hundreds of hours with prosecutors and the intelligence agencies to try to find 
a common ground where there would be information that would would meet the requirements of a federal court prosecution, but also protect our intelligence sources in a way that was important. There's some laws like the Classified Information Protection Act or SEPA that allow you to do that, but they're not, they don't cover everything. And the intelligence equities are real and they're important, particularly in the middle of a war. Wow. So, you know, you mentioned that you were in a junior role on 9-11. How did you find the confidence to take on so much responsibility in the days and years following? You know, what advice would you give to someone who finds themselves in a, a position where they feel over their head or new to something that they feel is bigger than themselves? Yeah, confidence, huh? I'm not sure I ever <laughs> felt like I had complete confidence. Um, uh, you know, fear is another thing. The fear of failure or the fear of missing something, I think, was a big driver to to make sure that you dealt with things over your head. I, I was junior in experience, but the mm -hmm. role that I had actually was um, a role of great responsibility, and I certainly felt it on my shoulders. And so... Being able to walk into a room and build the relationships and make the decisions or drive and influence people uh, to to help, you know, into the right way to protect our country, you had to you had to be sure of yourself and be sure of your decision making after getting expert advice. And so I think I spent a lot of time making sure that we were collaborating with others and that we were um, obtaining the right information in order to have the confidence to have the meetings where certain decisions could be made or that I could put input into in a way that was built by that. So I would say digging in and working hard to get the information that you needed is what would allow you to have confidence in those days um, to do that. I mean, at the end of the day, putting in the time matters, but you also have to be very guided by your principles and mm -hmm. your judgment. And, you know, that for whatever reason, your judgment and your principles got you to, to be in that position, whether it's entry level or, you know, the highest level of our cabinet. Right. And I, and I think that, that has to be your compass that you fall back, back on after gathering all the information to, to just really do the best you can. And we all make mistakes. Um, but you try to do the best that you can on a day-to-day -day basis. And this things were happening so fast, you just got up and did the next 24 hours the same way you did the others, learning hopefully along the way. That's a great answer. I like that. So later on in your career, you went back to DOJ um, and you helped stand up the National Security Division. So could you tell us a little bit about why and how that process unfolded? Sure. So I went back to lead the criminal division in 2005. And at the time, the National Security uh, Division hadn't been set up. The counter espionage section, the counterterrorism prosecutors, they were all still part of the criminal division. But the criminal division also had public corruption and white collar crime and international narcotics and all these other responsibilities. And the policymakers, really the, the White House, the Congress, the department, all, all came to the conclusion that it would be better to have a division that was set up to focus on protecting our country and our mm. national security. So parts of the criminal division moved over and they also took parts 
from other places like FISA. The FISAs went to the National Security Division. Um, and, and so they stood up with that overriding mission. They were able to grow. Again, we 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 offered from the criminal division. We were they were right down the hall, so we were there with you know not only people but pencils, you know everything they <laughs> needed. We wanted them to succeed and helped in that first year. Ken Weinstein was the first assistant attorney general, fabulous leader, did a great job, and so we helped along the way with them driving the mission. And now it's you know 15 years later or or so, and you know, so thankful that we have them there. It's a big division and they are just really focused on protecting all of us. That's awesome. So, you know, earlier on, you had mentioned that a, uh, that mentorship is really important to you and, and mentors have been in, important to you throughout your career. As you've ri- risen to more senior roles, um, how have mentors and opportunities shaped your leadership style? I've been blessed to have fantastic mentors throughout my career. Some of them have been really senior to me. Some of them are my colleagues. And frankly, I have been mentored by people that are junior to me. So one thing I would say is you cannot look for mentorship in one place. It comes in, if you're open to it and you engage in it, 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 you can get mentors everywhere. And they, I've been so blessed, as I said, to have so many. Obviously, Mike Chardoff was a significant mentor to me. He's one of the brilliant lawyers, but he always taught me, like, you have to set priorities. You have to focus on those priorities and drive those priorities. And he taught me so much, but that was one thing in a a leadership piece that really mattered. Early on in my legal career, I um, was blessed to work for a woman just in private practice that just taught me that excellence and quality matters, that that first impression and excellent was always going to matter. And then, you know, later I had people teach me about how to be a leader of large groups of people in a way of being able to listen to what they need, support them to set objectives for them and to really tailor your leadership towards what it was that was needed for that organization because not one size fits all. And I had a really wonderful woman that I worked with in the criminal division, Monique Roth, who really was just direct and transparent. She gave me the good, she gave me the bad, she gave me the really ugly and and was worked with me to help the division set priorities and objectives and you know, that was a form of mentorship that was so important to me. I I really think at the end of the day, being able to support others and add value to others is something that I think is most important in a leader. You Mm -hmm. know, you have to be able to make decisions and you have to have the knowledge and expertise to be part of a team, but you have to support the people that you're leading and you have to understand them before you can lead them. I 100% agree with that. Um, so I, I I don't know if you've heard previous episodes of Iron Butterfly, but we like to end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I'm going to go with Radar. It's a, it's a character from a military medical TV show from a long time ago, and it it was a guy that basically was somebody that people went to for information. 
when I left the department, so it's a name that I'm not giving myself. When I left the Department of Justice, Attorney General McKay actually gave me this compliment at my going away ceremony. And it's and it's basically about hearing the helicopters before they're there or seeing around the corner uh, before you know what's coming and being able to kind of strategize about that. And and when I left, I was very flattered by having that name. And when I left that day, people from my front office, they brought in what was then a boombox, a radio, and they played the theme song as we walked out of the building carrying my boxes to my car. So it's it's meaningful to me. Oh, I love that. And I love that A.G. Mukasey gave that to you. Yeah. He's awesome. That's he is. great. He's That's great. great. Absolutely. Well, Alice, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This was really fun. And I know we all, not just myself, but all of us appreciate, you know, the stories you shared with us, you know, your service to our country and um, your leadership. So thank you so much. I hope you had a good time. And uh, until next time. Oh, super fun, Megan. Thank you so much. And, and just congratulations on the podcast and everything that you all are doing. Really wonderful. Thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.